0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And What he's doing is he's answering questions from his disciples about uh, the destruction of the temple, the uh, sign of his coming, and of the end of the age. I'm not going to re-preach that message. You can go back and get it if you want. Again, it's just last Wednesday. I'll just say this, that as we talked about last week, a lot of the confusion and difficulty of that passage arises from the fact that we're not always sure which one of those questions he is answering from verse to verse. It's not, uh, he didn't answer it linearly, and I think he did that on purpose, uh, but we wound up looking at the end of that message at a couple of short illustrations that Jesus gives us. He says uh, there'll be, uh, when that, on that day, there'll be two men working in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two, men, two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. And uh, there's been much discussion and a lot of ink spilled about what does that mean. And for a dispensationalist, a dispensational premillennialist, uh, which we're going to talk about some of those terms here in a little bit, a pre-trib dispensationalist premillennialist sa- uh, says that when says one's taken, one's left. That the one who's taken is raptured uh, to be with Christ, and the one that's left is here to endure the tribulation. Uh, that doesn't necessarily follow from the Scripture when we see the word taken or took. Uh, in the previous verse, he's talking about the flood. He says it's going to be. He's talking about it as it was in the days of Noah. It's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. People are just living their lives. Notice it says eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Doesn't talk about raping, pillaging, burning. They're just living life, completely ignorant of God, and they just went on living that way until what? Until the flood came and took them away. Uh, and now we're talking about how uh, one will be taken. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a pre-trib rapture he's talking about. And as I, uh, I think I pretty much finished with this last week, I don't think Jesus is discussing the mechanics of the return or anything like that. He's just saying the point he's driving home is it's going to come unexpectedly. When Jesus comes back in that moment, it's going to be in a moment. It's going to be sudden, it's going to be unexpected, and uh, it's going to be final. Too late to do anything else about it. And what I didn't get to, and it's kind of funny because uh, it really was the reason I was thinking about this whole subject in the first place when I decided to preach that message last week, and, and that is what this passage has to say about the last days themselves. And what I want to talk to you about briefly tonight is what is known as post-millennialism. First of all, uh, we are mostly familiar with this argument, the pre-trib mid-trib, or post-trib rapture, where trib stands for tribulation. We believe there's going to be a tribulation in the last days. Uh, Some people call it the seven years tribulation to be perfectly accurate. The Bible doesn't talk about that. It talks about a final seven-year period, Daniel's remaining week of years. If you remember from the book of Daniel, he talks about the 70 weeks. 69 of those weeks are accounted for, and there's one remaining week. And, uh, Daniel's 70th week is what we call the last days, and the last half of that is described in Revelation uh, as, as the uh, great tribulation. Now, I'm not going to get into that tonight, not, not, not deeply, okay? All I'm saying is everybody, pretty much across the board, Bible-believing Christians now, believe there's going to be a tribulation in the last days. Where we disagree on is perhaps the length of that tribulation, the scale of that tribulation is it mostly in Israel, or is it global? Most people believe it's global. Uh, I happen to believe it's global, at least you know, to the extent that we are a global society. You know, nobody lives in a bubble anymore. Uh, and the big question, of course, is, are we going to be here for it? If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, what you believe is that this whole seven-year period is going to be kicked off. With the rapture of the church. And that would make a lot, it makes a lot of sense in a number of ways, not the least of which the confusion that the world would be thrown into when millions of people, I pray billions of people, suddenly disappear from the face of the earth. And the scrambling that takes place, you imagine, you know, you've seen the movies, you've read the books, airplanes falling out of the sky, vehicles suddenly unmanned, and empty t shirts that say, in case of rapture, this t shirt will be empty. Remember those? I had one of those t shirts. I can remember the days we'd be walking through the amusement park, and so I would say, rapture practice, and we'd go, whoo. It's kind of cool. And uh, I wasn't carrying reading glasses back in that day. <laughs> but we were excited about it, and it's a cool thing to be excited about. Uh, the mid-trib uh, view is really, should be more accurately be described as mid-seven-year period, which is that Jesus comes in the middle of that final seven years, Uh, Or not Jesus comes, but the rapture takes place. The church disappears three and a half years into this final seven-year period. And then there's three and a half years of tribulation. And then there is the post-trib view, which is that we are here for the whole tribulation. And uh, the rapture really is simply uh, coincident with the second coming. All right? I kind of lean that way. All right? Just so you know, I'm not not 100% sold on... Any one of those views, and I'm okay with that. It's not, I don't believe it's a faith-deciding issue. As I mentioned maybe last week, certainly recently, I heard it, uh, I heard it preached from somebody. It, it's it's going to be unto you according to your faith, meaning if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, you'll get raptured. And if you don't, well, no. It's, it, if, the, if it's a pre-trib rapture, we're all going. And if it's post-trib rapture, we're all staying. All right? That's, I think that's pretty clear from Scripture. But anyway, but uh, premillennialism and uh, post-millennialism is not, uh, not talking about the rapture. They're talking about the millennial reign of Christ. Well, another thing that we believe, and this is, uh, you can read it. We're not going to read it tonight for the for, uh, sake of time. But it's at the end of Revelation chapter 19, beginning of Revelation 20, when John sees uh, these thrones coming out of the heaven and Jesus sitting on the throne. He's coming down with his, the tattoo or the, or the writing on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's written on his robe. And we see these uh, resurrected believers who are beheaded for their faith seated on these thrones, and power or authority and judgment are given to them, and they reigned with him on earth for a thousand years. And this is the picture, this beautiful, vivid picture of the literal return of Jesus Christ to earth, as he promised he would. Remember, when he ascended, an angel said, why do you stand here looking into the skies? This same Jesus who you just saw ascend is going to return in like manner. All right, Uh, and and that's an important, that's why the the ascension is a pretty important doctrine because they physically watched him rise into the sky. And this angel is saying you're going to physically see him descend from the sky. As we read last week, Jesus said that event is going to be visible from east to west. It would be like lightning. You got your back to the lightning and you still know lightning happened because it lights up the whole sky. When Jesus comes back, the whole world is going to know it. And that's why we don't believe it when we hear, hey, he's in a room over here. Hey, come here. We found Jesus. He's in this city. Come see him. Don't believe him. When he comes back, I uh, heard Mylon Lefebvre say this once down at Canaan Land. He came to visit, visit us and gave us a little teaching. And he said, when you hear people talking about Jesus and the highways and the byways or Jesus, uh, he's coming like you don't expect him. Uh, He's a humble man serving in a soup kitchen over here. He said no matter what anybody says about the return of Christ, if he's not coming on clouds of glory with all of his angels, it ain't Jesus. All right? That's what we're going to see. Now, so what we believe is he is going to return. And we believe there is going to be a thousand-year period called the millennial reign, which is going to be a period of peace, a period of prosperity, a period of good Re, uh, relationships between nations and that Christ is going to be ruling over this. The pre-millennialist believes that this happens when Jesus comes back. He comes back and ushers in his millennial reign. This is where I happen to f- believe, by the way, and I think most of you do too. I land on, on, on that part of the doctrinal spectrum. And there are subtle differences. There's such a thing as a historical premillennialist and a dispensational premillennialist. I'm not going to go into any of that stuff tonight. Uh, The whole point is, I believe, uh, and I intend to at least begin to make the case tonight, that it is impossible to envision a millennial reign of Christ without the physical, literal presence of Jesus Christ. I think the millennial reign can only happen with Jesus on earth. And he comes, and I believe this is when we're going to see. And, we, and, and I don't want to be, listen, I don't hate planet Earth. I think we ought to be better stewards of this planet than we are, generally speaking. I just think that the Earth is much more resilient than a lot of people believe it is. I don't think our stewardship should begin to extend to something like worship, which it certainly has in the minds and uh, hearts of a lot of people. Okay? We don't worship this Earth. I don't, like the, I don't even like the term Mother Earth. Or Mother Nature, I think they're, they're, you're flirting with paganism when you think of those terms. But I do believe there, there are some, there are certain uh, environmental crises, and I think you know when people talk about food shortage, fuel shortage, shortage of this, shortage of that. One of the great, if you want to listen to a kind of a cool old gospel song, uh, look up the song called "No Shortage" by the Imperials. This was pre Taft days. Anybody remember that song? I know a good thing that there's no shortage of. There's no shortage on God's mercy. There's no shortage on God's love. That was when uh, Sherman Andres was the lead singer. Anyway, no shortage. Imperials, write it down. You writing it down? I explain. You find this on YouTube. It's easy. Anyway, yeah, there you go. I Had a girl, yeah, or in my office. Yeah, I'll just give a live performance after this. Anyway, what we're going to see. I believe, is when Jesus comes back and, be, and rules the world, he's going to show us just how much is in the earth, just how abundant everything is if it's simply managed correctly. And we've seen this. We've seen this on small scales for years, for decades. We know, we absolutely know, there is more than enough food to feed the world. It's not that we're not growing enough, making enough, packaging enough, preserving enough. There is, there, there. I don't know, I, I don't know, I couldn't begin to tell you the math. Daryl might know a little bit more about this than I would, but there's plenty of food out there. The problem is not there's not enough food and too many people, the problem is bad government. You know, people organize these airdrops, they, they organize millions of dollars worth of food aid to go to these countries, and it sits in rail cars and airports and everything else and rots because people want to take control of it, and people want to use it to control people's lives. It's bad government. Now, why does bad government exist? And this is the question the premillennialist has to to answer, or sorry, the postmillennialist has to answer, because I think we are never going to fix this thing. Jesus will fix this thing. The postmillennialist believes that our mission as believers is to usher in that millennial kingdom for a 1,000 years before Jesus gets back that Jesus is coming into the end of the millennial kingdom. That And, and you've got to understand, this is, a, this is a widely held belief, and there are good believers who believe it. I don't believe it's rank heresy. I think it's error. All right, They still do believe in the literal, physical return of Jesus Christ. Uh, they simply think that our mission, the mission that Jesus left us, is to transform the world into the kingdom of God. That through the spread of the gospel, we will bring his spiritual rule to the earth before he gets here. Uh, in fact, many postmillennialists, they, 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 I think it's kind of a tongue in cheek, they refer to themselves as optimillennialists, as, as in uh, uh, optimists. And they call postmillennialists, or uh, pre-millennial, premillennialists, optimists. Mo, millennial. Pessimillennialists, say that five times fast, because we're pessimistic. And it's this idea, and it's easy to slip into, isn't it? That, hey, you know what, it's all going to burn anyway. How hard should we work to try to save the environment? How hard should we work to improve society when it's all going to burn? Nothing's going to work till Jesus gets back here. Let's just hang on tooth and nail till he gets here, or until we die, whatever. None of it really matters. That's not the right attitude either, is it? I mean, we know that Intuitively. Here's the thing. I'm okay with the with the post-millennialist view. I disagree with it. I disagree with it strongly, and I'm gonna get into why here in a second, but I get it. I, I like the work ethic that's involved. We're gonna get out there, we're gonna preach the gospel, we're going to improve society because the Holy Spirit is with us, and Jesus gave us this mission, and and he told us to pray. He himself told us to pray. Thy will be done, thy kingdom comes, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So we're gonna to work toward that. We're gonna pour ourselves into this, we are gonna feed the hungry, we're gonna clothe the naked. Uh, we are going to heal the sick, usually through hospitals, and we are, we are going to make this earth like the kingdom of God, and then Jesus is going to come back. Let's start with this, and this is true. You can, uh, I- I'll dig up the titles, but there are some good books that have been written fairly recently about the, the observation that Christianity has gotten a bad rap by secular historians, and the fact is if you do just a little bit of digging, it's easy to demonstrate. And it's clear. Uh, that Christianity has had a softening effect on society, a culturing effect on society, an enlightening effect on society. The greatest gains, by far, overwhelmingly, the greatest gains culture and society have made in the realm of human rights, education, welfare, charity, and I'm talking feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, closing the naked, etc. All these things have their roots in the church. The church... The body of Christ has done far more than anybody else to get these things started. People are very fond of pointing out how there were Christians in the United States using the Bible to defend slavery, and that is true. But these same people are ignoring the very clear historical fact that it was Christians who were overwhelmingly at the root of the abolitionist movement. Abolition was a Christian position. Have there been dark episodes in history for the church? Absolutely, there have. What are the two? Uh, uh, what's exhibit A and B? The Crusades and the Inquis- Inquisition. But statistically, in terms of lives, those are nothing more than a blip on the radar screen. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I probably should have, but I don't. But if you, if you punch them in, uh, you, and you can find these things, how many people were killed uh, in the Christian Crusades, over the course of how many years? How many people were killed uh, in the Inquisition over the course of how many years? And you consider how many years these things went on. It's just a few lives a year. Relatively few lives total, especially compared to what happened in just the 20th century as a result of atheistic philosophy. Okay? Who, uh, Hitler was most strongly influenced by Nietzsche. And Nietzsche made some pretty brilliant contributions to the philosophical world, but he's most famous for one three-word sentence. Anybody remember what that sentence is? God is dead. God is dead. And as Dostoyevsky pointed out, if there is no God, all things are permissible. We don't have to answer to anybody if there's no God. This is what drove... The Nazi machine, this is what drove uh, Stalin, and this is what drove Mao Zedong in China. And between the three of them, somewhere between 60 and 100 million people died as a direct result of that philosophy. Orders of magnitude more than died in all the Crusades and the Inquisition in a much, much shorter time span because of atheistic philosophy. So Christianity has had this good culturing, uh, progressive effect on culture and society. And, and let, me, let me back up and say this. You know, I don't want to gloss over the fact, you know, I say few, relatively few. We're still talking hundreds or thousands of people who died uh, in the Crusades and the Inquisition. If one person was killed in the name of Christ, that's one too many people. Uh, but I'll quote Ravi Zacharias here. You don't judge the Christ on the basis of a deviation from his teaching. These people might have been saying and even believing they were doing something in the name of Jesus, but they certainly were not following Jesus or his teaching. Uh, meanwhile, over the centuries, laws were passed, hospitals were built, schools were built, slavery was abolished, shelters were set up, food distribution networks all overwhelmingly by Christians. Now I want to interrupt myself to tell you a story, and I know I've told this before in one context or another, but when I was in Farmer City, uh, I was part of the Blue Ridge Ministerial Association, which is just a monthly, uh, we, we kind of do this in St. Joe too, but it's much more informal here. We just sit around and have coffee and talk here. Over there, it was when we had a, a president and a secretary and a treasurer. We got together monthly to discuss certain things, and it was fun. It was still a time of fellowship, several ministers get together and uh they were thinking of uh they had not had a baccalaureate service in a number of years and i was suggesting that we do this and so we we got the thing fired up and i really wanted to do it at the school so i made the contacts we got in there and we had a baccalaureate service in the school for the first time and i don't know how many years it was okay uh wasn't particularly well attended but for a first one in a while uh we everybody was pretty pleased and uh But afterward, a woman came up to me, happened to be a Jewish woman who I'd met back in Parkland, way back in the day, and she confronted me and said, "Uh, hey, I couldn't help but notice that this service was, it seemed to be overwhelmingly Christian. I said it was. if you'll read the program, this this was a Christian service sponsored, promoted, and directed by the Christian churches in town. And she said, you can't do that. I was like, we just did that. (laughs) No, what I said was, well, sure we can. Why not? She goes, no, you have to understand that not everybody's a Christian. I said, I understand that. She goes, then your service needs to be a service for all religions. I said, no, it doesn't. I'm not going to do a Muslim service. I'm not going to do a Jewish service. I don't believe those religions. Now, I absolutely will not fight you if you want to have one of those here. You can. I would support your right or any Muslim's right to use this facility to do the same thing. But I'm not going to do it. It's not going to be a part of the service that I conduct because I think there's a difference, and I think the difference is important. She goes, "Well, this is something that's going to have to be talked about." All that to say, when we met as a ministerial association, I brought this conversation up. I said, "You need to know this because she's a, she's kind of got an activist mindset, and she's got other kids coming up through the school system, and this is probably going to be an issue." Catholic guy there said, "Well, you have to understand, this is kind of an ecumenical thing. You know, it's a part of the school," and I said. Brother, this is as ecumenical as I get. we got Methodist, Church of Christ, Baptist, me, Catholic, but we're all Christians. What you're talking about or suggesting is multi-faith, and I'm not down with that. I'm not going to get up there and pretend that, well, you can believe in uh, uh, Buddha, you can believe in Muhammad, you can believe in, in Judaism, whatever, but we really are all just children of God. And this uh, uh, elderly Methodist minister across the table says, oh, but I believe that. And I just said, what? Just like that. I put my hands on my head, and then the president said, That's just, let's table this discussion. We've got a whole year. Uh, but I was just, my, my, my blood pressure was up. My face is turning red. I couldn't wait to get out of the meeting. And then the next month, uh, I set it up. Before we met, I, had, I got there early, about an hour early, to have coffee with the president of the ministerial association. And she was telling me, about her time in Africa. She was trying to educate me and tell me this is, this is why this is important. She said, uh, I was a missionary in Africa for a couple of years before we came back here to pastor. And what we did was we built schools, we, we uh, started a clinic, and we dug a lot of wells. But it was all about affirming their essential value as people. We did not preach the Christian gospel. Now, maybe this makes me uncultured. All right, maybe I'm a Neanderthal. But all I can think of is so you educate them and you feed them and you medicate them so they can get through life and go to hell. Because there's only one name given under heaven by which man may be saved. And that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said this, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be damned. Those are harsh words from the loving Jesus who absolutely affirmed the dignity of all human beings and backed it up by dying for the entire world. So anyway, let's respect their religious beliefs and focus on their inherent value as human beings. I I guess I would phrase it like this. Let's be Jesus without mentioning Jesus. I think think that's how they would sum it up. But here's the problem with that. What did Jesus do? I get so tired about reading about Jesus when he's portrayed as some kind of social activist. You know, he did not come on the scene to take on the unjust practices of the Roman government. He did not come to start social reform. The Bible tells us, Jesus said, "I, I I was made manifest to what? To destroy the works of the devil. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This was his mission. These other things are good. The hospitals, the schools, all right? The feeding programs, the clothing, the shelter, all that is good. But they are outworkings of what we believe about Jesus. If God so loved the world, then what can we do to show the world that kind of love? How can we reflect that kind of love? But it absolutely must point to Christ. Jesus at the center of it all. That cannot be just a nebulous concept. Everything we do ultimately needs to point to him. Because it's always going to point somewhere. And if it's not pointing to him, who's it going to point to? It's going to point to us. It's going to glorify mankind. What does this have to do with postmillennialism? Postmillennialism believes that Christ is ruling and reigning from heaven and that we establish his kingdom before he physically returns. The problem is this. The world, and increasingly the church, I might add, is taking all the social stuff that the church has historically done in the name of Jesus and just leaving Jesus out of it. Christ himself is seen as kind of an anachronistic element to this whole scheme. Well, they can acknowledge, that his, if they're honest, they do. They acknowledge. I, I, I've, seen, I've seen forums where very smart people, well, they're smart in some ways, but, they, they are, but they're stone atheists. They'll say, look... Uh, I don't believe in God. I think people who believe in God are stupid. But you have to be honest. Historically, the church has done a lot of good. It's the church we have to thank for giving us public education, public, you know, uh, medicine, blah, blah, blah. Name all the good things church has done. It's just that now we have reached a state where we can, we can enjoy these things and even appreciate the historical contributions of the church. But now we're smart enough that we don't have to believe in God to appreciate these things. But the church is kind of buying into this too. They're saying this is really what it means to be Jesus. Simply feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, free the slave. And that's being Jesus. But nobody hears of Jesus in the process. Humanitarianism, or more precisely humanism, is what's important. Let me tell you this. You cannot usher in the kingdom of God without God. The gospel will spread. So they're half right. Uh, I've shared this. It's not a quote. It's an idea. I I don't don't have the quote memorized. But Tim Keller writes in, uh, I think it's in his book, The Reason for God. He says, you know, there's there's actually been argument. You know, people believe there's going to be an end time harvest of souls. But the Bible also talks about an end-time apostasy. Uh, apostasy. What's that? A great falling away. Well, what's it going to be? What's going to happen in the last days? Are people going to be coming to Christ in greater numbers, or are they going to be falling away from Christ in greater numbers? Both things are true. Both things are true. The world that I grew up in and that many of you grew up in is a world where, again, 95-plus percent of the people on the street, if you asked them, do you believe in God, do you believe in the Bible, uh, they would all say Yes. But they, didn't, they weren't passionate, they weren't born again, they didn't really believe, it was just sort of a cultural thing. They would say they believed, but they didn't know what they believed, and they didn't live what they supposedly believed. So what we see now is much less of that gray area. There are probably no more, percentage-wise, no more true atheists than there were 40 years ago. It's just that people aren't pretending anymore. They're more honest with themselves. So the Christians, people are still coming to Christ in great, great numbers but they know what they're getting into, and they're serious about it. The people who were never serious about it in the first place just stopped playing games. And this is the world we're living in. And I believe it's the world we're going to continue to live in until Christ returns. Meanwhile, we are called to continue to love our neighbor, to love our neighbor, and to win our neighbor. Remember what Paul said we talked about it Sunday. We read it in 1 Corinthians I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some or win some, depending on what translation you're using. It's just a, a, if it's just a matter of making the world a better place and things are just going to get better and better, then why all the warning and talk about persecution? Where's it coming from? If, it's all just, if all Jesus called us to do is to improve society, and if we can do that without mentioning Jesus and please him just as well, then where's the persecution coming from? But Jesus promised persecution, didn't he? Nobody's going to persecute you for feeding the hungry. They'll only persecute you for feeding the hungry in the name of Jesus. Well, it would mean more if you would just offer this food to the people without trying to jam the Bible down their throats. And you know people believe that. You've got an ulterior motive. Of course I do. I want to save their eternal soul. Not just feed their bellies for the day. And so what we have are several scriptures that we just read in Matthew about the sudden nature of his return that will catch some people unpleasantly by surprise. There's a great song that Keith Green wrote back in the 70s called Summer Snow. Matthew Ward recorded a fantastic version of it back in 1979. I think he was probably only 20 years old when he sang this. I thought about playing it, but I was correct when I realized, when I thought we probably won't have time for it. But there's a, it opens up saying this. Unexpectedly, you came back to see if I'd be waiting like I promised long ago. Your shadow filled the room. The music changed its tune. When I saw you, you were standing at the door. And it was all about somebody who had once believed, had stopped living his life for Christ, and then was surprised to see Jesus back. With that in mind, let me read this passage. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 45. I think we read it quickly last week, but let me read it again. Beginning in verse 45, it says then, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? So the master, he puts one guy in charge of his household to see to it, make sure everything continues. All the people who are working for him get fed and paid, whatever. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying in his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That my friends, is a sobering passage of Scripture. Now, i got to ask you this. Is Jesus preaching salvation by works here? How are we saved? We just finished the book of Romans. We are saved by grace through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The righteous will be saved. But we get that righteousness on account. Where does it come from? From believing God. But, super important, how did Abraham demonstrate his belief? What did belief in Abraham look like? It looked like obedience, didn't it? I remember coming, and I'm I'm getting ready to wrap this up here. I remember in my Parkland days, so not too long after high school, so at least 10 years ago, there was a uh, Christian group that had a couple tables set up with uh, dozens of different tracts and booklets. I don't think it was uh, Parking Christian Fellowship. I think it was a group that was just in there visiting. But they were there just kind of preaching in the hallway, handing out tracts. And I remember one caught my eye. The name of the tract was The Impossibility of Agnosticism. The Impossibility of Agnosticism. I didn't read it. I didn't get it. But I'm walking there with my friend who was a new believer who said, that's a stupid title for a tract. I don't even want to read it, because what's impossible about agnosticism? Agnostics, you know, it, it comes from the Greek word to, uh, to have no knowledge of. Ah, that's the, the alpha with without, and gnosko, knowledge, agnostic. He says, what's impossible about saying you don't know? So the atheist says what? There's no God. The theist says there is a God. And the agnostic says, I don't know. That's putting it in very simple terms. So the impossibility of agnosticism. So the title did seem kind of silly. What's, what's, what's so hard about saying you don't know? Now, I never did read the tract. But the more I thought about that title over the following days and years, here's what I come up with. How many of you know an agnostic? Have you ever known who, anybody who, who, who self-identified as an agnostic? You know, and and really I would call an agnostic somebody who's at least smart enough not to be an atheist. They don't want to say dogmatically there is no God. Or maybe maybe they're a lazy atheist. They don't want to have to demonstrate why they believe there's no God. So they just say, you know what, I don't know. Nothing's obvious enough. But the person who says they don't know, do they live as if there is a God or as if there is no God? I've never known an agnostic who lived as if there was a God. I'm not saying they were all evil. I've known some good people, people who were generally, you know, good citizens, well-behaved, good neighbors. But they did not live as if there was a God. And and as Ravi says, the problem with with atheism is not that they are inherently evil. It's just that there's no rationally compelling reason for them to not be evil. If you say, well, from the goodness of my heart, I just feel like I need to be this way, that's great. That's great. But if you have an Adolf Hitler who says, I believe I need to be this way, how do you argue against him? Where's the law? Where's the standard? What do we measure it by if there's no God? So the agnostic says, I don't know. The point that I think Jesus is making is, if you are living as if there is no God, it really doesn't matter what you think you believe. You are absolutely saved by grace through faith. But I think a lot of times we kid ourselves about what we say we have faith in. Because true faith, true belief, translates into living your life in a certain way. That's why Jesus is able to say this. Jesus, if our salvation depended on earning our righteousness from God, then this passage would be a little bit easier to take. I'm telling you to do something, and you better be doing it when I come back. Or so help me, I'll beat you to a pulp. But no, this is Jesus himself who knows he's going to the cross to purchase salvation for us. And so what he's saying is, if you really believe this, that this salvation is a gift, you are really going to be obeying me. You're going to be, you're going to be living your life to please me because you know I'm coming back. And you're going to give an account for the life that I've given you. What, you doing, what are you doing with it? And if you are living your life as if there is no God no matter what you say with your mouth, it's because you really believe there is no God. If you're living your life as if he's not coming back, praise and worship team, you can come up here. If you're living your life as if he's not coming back, then no matter what your doctrinal statement is, you really don't believe he's coming back. You certainly don't believe that his return is imminent. And it is. People are very fond of saying, well... Jesus is coming back, but it's a long—it's probably a long way off, isn't it? Funny that the people who wrote the New Testament, by and large, believed it was—he com- was coming back in their lifetime. They thought they were in the last days. Guess what? They were. We could talk about dispensationalism a little bit, but to talk about the Church Age or the last days—they began two thousand years ago, and we've been—we've been getting into the laster and laster days. I don't know if it's going to be. A year from now, 10 years from now, 100 years from now. I don't know if it's going to be 10 minutes from now or a minute from now. Guess what? You don't either. You don't either. What are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? Occupy until I come. Can we change the world? You bet. Are we going to transform it into a paradise, a Christian utopia? Are we going to usher in the manifest kingdom of God before the king gets here? No, I don't believe we are. I believe we are going to redeem it one person at a time, one corner of the world at a time. We are going to be lights, bright lights, but we are going to be lights in the darkness. The darkness isn't going to go away until the Father of lights inhabits this earth in the person of the Son. Does that make sense to you? There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be fights. There's going to be opposition until the end. There is too much language about these last days. And we haven't even touched Revelation when we talk about the last battle, when when the armies of the earth that are fighting each other suddenly see the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the heavens and say, let's lay aside our arguments with each other and fight him. And he destroys them in the Valley of Armageddon. It's going to be ugly up until the very end. And that's what's going to be so amazing. When his feet touch the earth, then he's going to start ruling and reigning and showing us just how it can be done. With all these people and so few resources, he's going to show us an abundance that was always available to us. The only thing that kept us from it was our sin, our flesh, and our failure to trust the one who was the author of it all in the first place. And I threw a lot at you tonight. But the main thing I want to leave you with is that challenge that we looked at at the very end. No matter how much you know about Scripture, no matter how right you are about your version of the last days, this is true about you. Your Master will return at an hour that you do not know. And you are blessed if he comes back and finds you doing the thing he left you here to do can I get an amen so I want you to think about this for a second you know better than to say this I'm a pretty good person I haven't killed anybody this week I haven't embezzled anything this week I'm okay are you doing what Jesus told you to do Have you done something this week to expand the kingdom of God in your house, in your life, in your little corner of the world? Read my newsletter article. There's a little blurb in there about that. Have you fallen into a rut? Have you bought the lie that, well, all God really wants me to do is just uh, be nice and successful on this earth? People will be won over by that witness. How many people have you gotten saved by being nice and successful this week, this year? We need to be a little bolder, don't we? People need to know why we're nice. People need to know the source of our success. Have you prayed for somebody this week? Do you know an unsaved person? Are you close to an unsaved person? Have you prayed for them this week? Remember the list that Moody carried around? There's so many little things that ought to be a part of our daily lives as believers and our weekly lives as believers. One of the important things you're doing, and I mean this, excuse me, from the bottom of my heart, this isn't just a pat on the back, I love, love, love the fact that you are here today, right now. Blesses me. It blesses me. I absolutely believe it blesses the heart of God. Listen, I know how hard it can be to get done with a day of work. No matter how much you love church, sometimes it's hard just to get back out the door. Yeah, I'd just like to sit down for an hour watch a tv show relax you're not wanting to sin but something told you, you ought to be here tonight and you responded to that and i believe it's the spirit of god and something powerful happens when this body's together so if you're racking your brain what did i do for the kingdom of god this week this is one thing you did you came here but let's just take this moment right before we close search our hearts if you dare Ask God to search your heart. See if there's any slack he wants to jerk out of your life. Maybe you need to make a fresh commitment to him tonight. If you do, hey, there's nothing wrong. Altars are open on Wednesday just like they are on Sunday. If you want me to pray with you, I'd be glad to do that. If you need to give your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, of course, let me pray with you. Got to be saved for any of this thing to matter at all. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ.